0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our exploration into these special topics. Uh, This evening, I want to take up the topic of blessings and being blessed. Responding to not only your question about what a blessing is, but also really the relevance of persecution and what it means to be in favorable standing with God. This is a topic that has come up recently quite a bit. So <laughs> I think it is very important to to talk about here on air in the friendly confines of Chico, California, in the studios here. So again, I welcome you, uh, those of you who are taking time out of your busy schedule. So again, this evening's topic is about being in favorable standing with God. Uh, incidentally, we should note that the Greek word for blessing is makarios, Okay it literally translates as to be in favorable standing with God, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. Uh, that Greek blessed is makarios, to be in favorable standing with God, which in many ways brings us back to the Old Covenant vision, Old Testament vision of peace. And the shalom, the Hebrew there means to be in covenant harmony with God. So when you're in covenant harmony with God, when you're in that dynamic relationship with God, certainly you are going to see what it means to be blessed as you are in favorable standing with God. Now, the conventional take on blessing is that it equals prosperity, and really this is what is behind the question I have received, and in many cases what is underneath the conversations that I have been in. This take that blessing equals prosperity, and On one hand, yeah, when you put in the hard work and you reap the reward of that hard work, therein lies blessing, sure. But is prosperity just another way of saying blessing? No. My dear friends, consider the rich young man that comes to us from the narrative of the Gospels. We'll turn our Bible to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. You can also find it in the Gospel of Matthew but the version that Mark gives us is a bit longer, so we'll read that. So Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many that are first will be last and the last first. What a gripping episode, huh? (laughs) Here you have this young man of great wealth reaching out to Jesus, saying what, my friends? Teacher, teacher, wait, hold up. I've got a question to ask you, right? (laughs) So, what might we glean from this text? What might this scene look like? Well, Jesus and his apostles are leaving town, right? And then they hear hear this young man crying out to Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they turn around and see probably a well-dressed man hurrying toward them. But for me, my friends... What is odd about this narrative is that he is wealthy. And imagine with me for a minute, he is not only wealthy, but Jesus and his apostles probably see a man troubled. And maybe they heard a man with an urgency in his voice. You know, that urgency, my friends, that comes with knowing intuitively that it is time to change something in my life, in your life, in our life. So at this point, the apostles undoubtedly assume that it was someone else who needed healing or maybe a relative to be delivered from the devil or a servant, right? But then it happens. The man drops to his knees in front of Jesus and blurts out, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch that, my friends? I, I, not him or her or he or she, or my son or servant, but I. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So many of us are accustomed to talking about what everyone else needs to work on, right? (laughs) But here in this episode, the emphasis is placed on the I. And so should we, you and I, (laughs) step into the, the shoes of this rich young man. Now, Let us get into even further the mind of the first century here. This is highly unusual, what is taking place here, because wealthy people were not in the business of being so earnest about such things. So the disciples, at this point, they are probably looking back at Jesus, still trying to figure this out themselves, quite frankly. One could only imagine how they were eager to hear what Jesus had to say. For certainly... At least for me, his response would help them better understand what it means to be blessed. As it helps us today better understand what it means to be blessed. Asking that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so for a moment, Jesus doesn't speak, but only looks intensely at the, at the young man. And then we read, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Not the expected reply, huh? (laughs) And at this point, the disciples were probably getting used to this, huh? But for the rich young man, probably not. He's probably looking quite confused. Then he says to the rich young man, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then the man replies, teacher, notably leaving off good this time, right? All of these things I have kept from my youth. Again, this is remarkable. Most people desperate to talk to Jesus were sick, demonized, sinners like prostitutes or tax collectors looking for forgiveness. Not this man. Why was this young man so troubled about his soul? Well, Jesus pauses again. And I dare suggest As he now looks upon the young man, that his face was radiating affection. The disciples anticipating a word of of maybe commendation or comfort. And this is what they've, again, grown accustomed to. But no, what comes out of our Lord's mouth is something different. Something unexpected. Something unconventional. Because that is always what comes from the mouth of Jesus. He says you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the material world, all of us can give something more, right? And without a shadow of the doubt, he is talking about specifically here the material good for the rich young man. Okay? That we all have something to give and when we do it, We will have treasure in heaven, especially when we follow Christ. So as the narrative unfolds, at this point, all eyes fall back on the young man as they look upon his face. Undoubtedly seeing blood and hope drain out of his face. He's staring at the ground. The rich young man was clearly devastated. He had known something that was wrong, but he hadn't been able to put his finger on it. Most folks he knew thought he was a good boy, right? And told him that his wealth was God's quote-unquote blessing. But he couldn't shake this nagging sense of guilt, even with all the rituals. He had hoped Jesus would give him the answer. But he wasn't prepared for this answer. He wasn't prepared for the answer Jesus gave him when he asked genuinely, what do I need to do to change? Before you point the finger at the rich young man, ask yourself that question. Are you willing to go where the rich young man went? He knew why his soul was troubled. When Jesus gave him the answer, he knew why his soul was troubled. All it took was a clear choice between two treasures, God or wealth. There on his knees in the dirt, before Jesus, he realized which treasure he loved more, and it wasn't God. And definitely, my friends, when we translate in the Sermon on the Mount, mammon, that Hebrew translates, and actually it's the Aramaic, rather, that translates as just not wealth, but trusting wealth. Now, this is important because soon thereafter, what do we hear but the Sermon on Trust, in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus says to us, do not worry. Do not be anxious. You translate that Greek, it's preoccupied. Do not be preoccupied, right? So he's juxtaposing wealth and God, and he's doing so within this framework of trust. And this is why I bring this up. Do you trust mammon or God, the material good or the spiritual good. So how does the narrative close out? He slowly gets up. And no, without making eye contact with the God-man, he walks away. And I would dare say the, in the all-time walk of shame. And then the God-man speaks, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God and no one says anything, right? Then Jesus speaks up again, huh? Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, how the disciples probably gave each other unsettled glances. I know I've been using probably a lot, and I usually don't do that, but when you enter into a narrative right? And, and use your imagination. Yeah, you can glean certain truth in the spirit and speak to the probably within the context of how this narrative plays out within the larger context of revelation, huh? And certainly in this case, I'm speaking to, as I use the word probably, human nature. <laughs> Each of them probably (laughs) suddenly realizing that their own idolatrous cravings and misguided hunger was not the kind of blessing that inherits eternal life oh how it made them wonder i'm sure one apostle under his breath says what (laughs) then who can be saved it didn't escape jesus's ear he firmly responds always in his unique way With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this story is a stark reminder that earthly prosperity can be, if it is where your heart is, a blight, a pest, certainly not a blessing. Strangely enough, my friends, it is adversity, not prosperity, that leads to to where the real treasure is right that's why jesus calls his disciples to follow him down very difficult and sometimes costly paths these paths that ultimately become the path to what the blessing these are the paths to eternal treasure and pleasure spiritual wealth and spiritual blessing this is why james says count it all joy when experiencing trials Trials push us to depend on God in ways we would not otherwise. Prosperity entices us to depend on worldly things for happiness and security as opposed to spiritual things for happiness and security. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, when we are down to nothing, God is always up to something. My dear friends, if you are experiencing distressing trials... I might suggest to you that it is likely that God has given you a priceless gift. What does the author to the letter to the Hebrews tell us? But that he lovingly disciplines those whom he loves, and he uses adversity. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Peter reminds us affectionately in his first first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, beloved Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. God knows how to make a camel pass through a needle's eye. All things are possible with God. Simply put, my friends, Jesus promised that following him would result in what but tribulation. But at the end of the path, (laughs) what awaits you is Eternal treasure. Now, as we talk about what it means to be blessed, here we ought to turn our attention to the Beatitudes. I already noted them and what Jesus says there on the mountain. In the Sermon on the Mount, He gives us the charter for holiness, the charter to live a blessed life. And how does He start this charter for blessings? Well, maybe it would be better asked. How doesn't he start? Blessed are those who prosper in wealth. Blessed are those who rise to great power through hard work. Maybe blessed are those who enjoy all the pleasantries in life. Blessed are those who meet famous people and get to go on regular vacations seeing the world. No. Again, these things in and of themselves are not bad. In some cases, can, can fall into the category of being in God's graciousness. But Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are those who are pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, Jesus says, in my name. So blessing then, based upon not what I said, but what Jesus says, (laughs) is rooted in being poor in God. So there you have it, right? He takes this idea of blessing equals prosperity and he turns it upside down. And as he does, ultimately, what he's presenting to us is the true meaning of blessing. Turning it right side up. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. Blessed are those who see all things your job, your family, your encounters, all of it in light of God. You know, here, my friends, as we are talking about, blessed are those who are persecuted, we ought to turn our attention to the early church, specifically the first three centuries of the church and the the days of the great persecution. It is fascinating to know, at least it is for me, (laughs) that my that by the early 4th century, of the 60 million people living in the Roman Empire, 33 million were believers, followers of the way, okay? I've been talking about the way recently. Remember, as recorded in the book of Acts, Christians in those first years were, were called, not Christians per se, but followers of the way, capital W, because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And my friends, These were not 33 million nominal Christians, nominal Catholics. If you were Catholic, you lived your life with great devotion, great intensity, with intentionality. Why? Because for the first Christians, death surrounded them. As the great Christian thinker Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Or rather, translating the the Latin there, the blood of the martyrs is the living seed. Tertullian was writing to the emperor Diocletian, and he says, Hey, you know, you think you are doing your empire a service in disposing of Christians, but what you do not know is that we become greater in number by each death. For the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, the blood of the martyrs is the living seed. All around the first Christians, my friends, there was persecution. And they saw it as a blessing, counting it as, well, what did James say? A joy. Because that is what Christ said. Hmm? Peter, Paul, and James talk like that because that's how Jesus talked. Many of those first Christians were interpreting their faith within the context of the crucifixion, entering into the mystery of Christ crucified, because this is what Paul preached. I just don't preach Christ but Christ crucified and oh by the way what else do we read in that verse this is a stumbling block to many you know I often get the question asked you know Joe why do you wear a crucifix just wear the cross well when the corpse is on the cross I just don't preach Christ but Christ crucified by the grace of God, go I. My dear friends, as we kind of peer into these first three centuries, it's worth noting something. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. To become a Christian, which again, in the first three centuries, and for that matter, the first 15 centuries, was universally to become Catholic, right? Initiated into this, into this sacramental church. For the adult, this was a process of being instructed in the truths of the faith of Jesus Christ. You see, they had gone through an initiation process that not only gave them a deeper understanding of the infinite mysteries of God, but in the light of them, what it means to take on the many burdens and risks risks that come with being Christian. So they were not only formed in what it means to be a disciple, a sacramental disciple, but they also understood what it means to live in the very mysteries they were formed in, right? You see, my friends, once formed in what the sacraments are, well, you now live sacramentally. You live with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven. You live with the end in mind. This is what the the first Christians boldly called the process of divinization, being deified in God. What does Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 say? But that we are partakers in the divine nature of God. That is, we are shares in the divine life of God. A mystery of grace that St. Paul describes as the indwelling of the Son. Thus we become sons and daughters of God by sharing in the one divine, glorious Sonship of Christ. This is grounded in the truth that Jesus Christ assumed our humanity so as to fill us up with his divinity. Okay. In the words of St. Augustine, we have not only become Christians by virtue of baptism, but Christ himself. We have become Christ, another Christ. And so we, as St. Augustine would put it, recapitulate Christ, which is to simply say, we reproduce His very life and word and deed, okay? Now, let me be clear on something. What I'm not talking about right now is the obliteration of who we are. My dear friends, each and every one of us have been given a particularity, a gift, a charism to share with the world. Jesus says, my friends, to each and every one of us, I created you because only you can manifest me like no one else. So become who you are called to be. And this begins by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit and our cooperation with him, with a deep understanding that, yes, sometimes that which is most difficult and we think is the opposite of blessing might be the very path to blessing. Amen. Amen. All right let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.